Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is the incredibly talented, Oscar-nominated, Emmy Award-winning costume designer to the stars, Ellen Mojanik. There isn't an A-lister she hasn't worked with in a career spanning three decades. As a top Hollywood costume designer, Ellen's passion for contemporary design has had an impact on motion picture style. She has a long history of working with Michael Douglas and designed that infamous white dress for Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. The list of prominent filmmakers Ellen has designed for is extensive. Steven Soderbergh, Steven Spielberg, Oliver Stone, Tony and Ridley Scott, and J.J. Abrams. The talent she has costumed reads like a who's who of Hollywood. Angelina Jolie, Diane Keaton, Glenn Close, Sharon Stone, Paula Patton, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Susan Sarandon, Gwyneth Paltrow, Sarah Jessica Parker, my personal favorite, Sienna Miller, Sandra Bullock, Diane Lane, Michael Douglas, of course, Matt Damon, Tom Cruise, Robert Downey Jr., Denzel Washington, Dakota Johnson, the list just goes on. Her recent Oscar nod is for Oppenheimer, and she's received critical acclaim for the TV series Bridgerton with all those gorgeous tiny corsets and patterns. We talk about just what it takes to have such a career in the entertainment business, especially as a woman, and that endless search for body perfect. Ellen, my darling, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Kate. Thank you for having me. Oh, I am thrilled. I've been wanting to get you on the show forever. And you and I have been friends for a really long time. I have admired you. You are literally one of the most creative, badass ladies, leaders, artists that I know out there. Thank you. Thank you. Come on, come on, come on. Thank you very much. (laughs) No, but I I wanted to tell your story because you are phenomenal. Your career has been second to none. You've won awards. You have worked on some of the top movies of all time. Certainly a couple of movies that will be in pop culture forever and ever and ever and ever. I think so. Like Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, the TV series Bridgerton, all the award winners, Oppenheimer, you just have been on a complete roll and there's just no stopping you. I want to, first of all, ask you, how did all this begin for you? How did you decide to become a costume designer? It was by sheer accident because at first I was a ready-to-wear designer and I worked for a great company. I worked for, had amazing mentors and I, after about six or seven years, I got bored. And I, the only other thing that I would have done staying in the fashion business is I would have tried to have my own firm, which I really was not interested in doing. Mm-hmm. I was with people that were absolutely wonderful. They were generous. I learned everything from working with people to skills to everything, empowerment, everything. And it was just sensational but I was just bored. Mm -hmm. And so I was married at the time and I went to visit my husband on a film set in New Orleans and they didn't have a costume designer. And the director asked if I wanted to do it, thinking, why not, right? 
And I said, yeah, I jumped at the chance. And it was like jumping into the fire. I knew nothing. It was it was a period piece, but it was actually a soft porn period piece at that time. It was called soft porn. But it was also like a very low budget picture, like $300,000, $400,000. And I went back to New York, pleaded with my boss and said, let me do this. I'll be gone eight weeks. I'll put enough work into the workroom to cover you for the time I'll be away. And I would like to do it. And he said, okay, go ahead. And that's how it really began. Actually, when I came back from doing it, he really was so wonderful that he would not let me leave until I was a little bit on my way. Mm. He wanted me to always be able to earn a living. Mm. The importance of mentorship is just, it's everything. It is everything. I'm very, very fortunate. Anybody that doesn't really support the idea of it, I just don't understand how people go from one place to the next place. And you really are a force in the industry, the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. And navigating, you have managed to navigate throughout your career, which is hard, right? You and I both have had many conversations about, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes how hard it is and the personalities and the egos and, you know, it's, it's difficult, especially being a woman. And I hate saying that, but it is true. You deal with a lot of men who are at the top making the decisions. How have you done that? And how have you stayed with it all these years just getting greater and greater and greater. Every time I talk to you, you've worked on another phenomenal project. (laughs) That's kind of you to say. You know, to break it down, I guess really going back to my original mentor, Herb Schneiderman was his name. There was a certain level of confidence that he instilled just in the easiest of ways. And I was not necessarily like handed everything on a gold or a silver platter at that company that I worked at, I had to learn, but he actually was a guiding force and he never made it an issue to talk to him. There was never an issue. So no barriers in terms of, I'm there for you, I support you, anything you wanna know, let's talk about it. Don't be embarrassed about anything. And you know, in thinking about it, even just right now, I would say that had to have been the number one factor in moving into a new industry where ego reigns supreme. Talent, not necessarily, but ego, yes. And I think it was just a cockeyed optimism, to be honest with you. Like I just, I never, ever, ever thought, well, I'm a woman and I have to fight for something. I never thought that. Mm. I never thought, why aren't I being treated well? Mm -hmm. I never thought that. Now, to qualify that, I will say it can have to do with the fact that I work in a field of design Mm. that is friendly to women, okay? Now, that on the other hand could say, well, she's just the costume designer, She's just this, she's just that, and so on and so forth. Well, that's true, but I mean, that's how it does go a lot of the time. However, by just being curious, 
I loved movie making so much. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to know everything. Mm. And I really adapted really quickly to understanding how it worked and understanding the movie you wanted to make. And I loved men. I mean, it was not a question of you're the enemy. I just love working with men. And in hindsight, I would guess I was non-intimidating. I was a force. I could be helpful in many different ways and everybody would win. So I was encouraged to walk along that path. But what does happen in the entertainment business, I think it happens in other businesses as well, but does certainly happen in the entertainment business is if you have another interest, like in a specific field, I'm in a specific field. I'm in a specific category. I'm a costume designer. It is specific, meaning directing, producing, writing. Let's just keep those three. I wouldn't put acting in there because that's not something that ever interested me. So let's say in the fields that you illustrate your voice, okay? Mm -hmm. That's not so friendly to be open to because... If she's not the costume designer and we get all that from her, what's going to happen when she's gone and she goes over there? So those three fields or that kind of creative force was never 100% available. And for me, as being a force field as I might have been, I was reluctant to break the ceiling. Mm. Now, before you said to me, my job, these were your exact words, my job is to serve the director's creative Mm -hmm. vision, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go straight on into, in your earlier career, one of the films you worked on was Basic Instinct with Sharon Stone, Michael Douglas, uh, and you also worked on Fatal Attraction. But let's talk about Basic Instinct for a second, right? So... Massive movie, pop culture, iconic film. And of course, we think of that movie. And what do we think about Sharon Stone sitting there in her white dress and opening her legs? Just call it crisscrossing her legs. Oh, crossing her legs. Okay. All right. But in my mind, I'm like, she opened her legs. But okay. Yeah. Cross her legs. (laughs) Cross her legs. So you told me that when you get booked on a job, you, once it's agreed, you get the script, you read the script. Were you aware that she was going to do this? And did you, is that something then you put in your mind? Okay, she's got to cross her legs and show her crotch. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not written as such, but what the whole film, if, if you remember, the costume that I was meant to design for this sequence, it starts like this. She's at her closet the Michael Douglas character witnesses her taking off the clothes that she was in. She drops those clothes and she puts on a dress very easily, one, two, three, zips it up, grabs her coat and leaves. They go in the car and they go to the interrogation room where she is like sitting on a stage, a platform in the center of the platform. The platform is gray. The design of the dress is white. And she's the center of attention. What Sharon and I discussed in designing the dress was that she wanted to have enough freedom to be able to take her arms 
out from being folded, put it around the chair, just as a man would sit in a chair and be expressive, best way to put it. And that included crossing and uncrossing her legs. It was never written in the text to seeing her crotch. It was crossing and uncrossing her legs. Her skirt was short. It was a mini. Her legs are very long. What you see is when she crosses and uncrosses her legs is a shot of her vagina, but you don't see it like, oh, here's the vagina. Well, I think you see pubic hair and... I don't know how much you see. What I think you are remembering is what you're intended to remember. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I was in the room when they shot that insert and it was shot for the purpose of crossing and uncrossing her legs. But just to be fair, we should check and see what we really did see. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to Google it. But let's just talk about this for a second, because it's so ingrained in our memories. What was it in the 90s? Was it the 90s? It was like 91 or 92. Yeah, ni- early 90s. And it was the first time that anything like that really had happened in film. Purposely happened. Although she denies, I've seen her deny in interviews that that was part of the script, but I can't possibly imagine that it would have been allowed otherwise. But anyway, that's up to her, what she says in her interviews. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it made her career. So I think she should be somewhat grateful. But in your world with that moment, what did you think? What did you all think that working on set and you saw that happen? I presume you were there when it was filmed. What was the entertainment industry saying about that? Because it, she was exposed. No, it was part of the director's vision. It was in the script. No one did anything to make anything salacious about it. Okay, nothing. This was part of the story. Everyone that worked on the film and financed the film knew what the story was. So you go about your day and you know what's going to be shot and you know what you need to shoot something or not need to to shoot something. And in that scene... She, as we begin the scene in the house in Carmel, I believe it was, she takes off her clothes. She's wearing no clothes, not a bra, not underpants. She puts a white dress on, zips it up. We see it all from the back. Which is a gorgeous dress, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, it was phenomenal. I remember thinking, wow, that dress. It's so simple, but so elegant. The simplicity of what that was, was who that character was, she was an icy blonde that was meant to seduce and seduce the room. She came across very powerful. Yeah. Because from our working notes, she and I, I'd like to wear or you design a dress that allows me the freedom to sit in the chair as a man would sit in the chair, open his legs, cross his legs, put his arms out, smoke a cigarette, do whatever he wanted to do and not be self-conscious about it. It's designed to allow all of her limbs the freedom to be able to move with ease and not like get caught up in, uh uh-oh, I can't move. I can't do this. I can't do that. Okay, now let's shoot to Bridgerton. We've all been obsessed with it. Congratulations. Thank you. So beautiful. The costumes are just breathtaking. And you deserve all of the acclaim that you've been getting. I mean, it just, as I said, a piece of art. Thank you. Lots of pieces of art. But I love the storyline. 
of how, you know, you watch the main female character, Phoebe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is in season one. Now they're about to enter, just for everybody's knowledge, they're about to enter season three, which will have a different main character. The storyline on season three will be of Penelope and Colin. So Penelope was the Featherington, the little redheaded girl. And Colin, the Bridgerton youngest son. And it's gorgeous. Full disclosure, I've only seen season one. So I can okay, only fair talk. Enough. All yeah, right, I can fair only enough. talk about season one. And I it's on my watch list. I, I definitely loved season one. I also knew you did the design, so <laughs> I wanted to give it my all. And I will finish it. But with Bridgerton in season one, with the main character, she discovers her sexuality with a black guy, which I thought was also very cleverly written, very interesting, basically making the point also that people of color existed in the aristocracy. Well, Shonda Rhimes really writes stories that actually are inclusive of everything. I know it was done on purpose. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, obviously with what the work that I do now with the body agency, part of the work that we do is around sexual wellness and female pleasure and, you know, exploring the barriers of why is there what we call an orgasm gap, right? Men can achieve orgasm much quicker than women. And here you have these two characters who he is teaching her right, about her sexuality, which in those days, right, was probably non-existent. I don't know, right? Probably. We don't know. We don't don't know. know. We don't know. But let's talk about the costume designs for a second, because you worked with a lot of corsets. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated about the corset situation. These actors have to be in those corsets for hours on end. Do you not get complaints Is it not uncomfortable? It's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And we really, in designing them, I mean, I had an an extraordinary corset maker, probably the finest in the world, Mr. Pearl, be part of my costume team. And that is something that doesn't happen every day. But that being said, we really try to have an actor be as comfortable as possible And granted, at the beginning of Bridgerton and design of Bridgerton and using corsets and being particular shapes and so on and so forth, no one knew really what the downside was going to be. Of wearing corsets. All day. Yeah. And with that, what's going to happen and how uncomfortable they're going to be and the who, what, where, how and when of the corset world. It's only good for a little while to be happy and look at yourself and say, wow, That's great. Or what adjustments do we have to, there were ways in which we did corsets that were adjustments to the real construction to allow for comfort. You have to be able to give some sort of freedom for a while or how fast can you get out of it? It's a very trying situation. And that corset, usually it was a half corset. Okay. But that doesn't mean anything. In actuality, for that time period, a half corset was what we used quite a bit of. And that was to actually push the bosom up and have the bosom appear to be as beautiful as two perfectly rounded mounds of gorgeous flesh. And that's what it was meant to do. 
the other corsets that we had to design if it, we had to change the shape of somebody's body or we had to move the bosom. And there's a character that has a huge bosom, huge, huge, huge natural bosom that was not going to work in any particular type of silhouette. And so Mr. Pearl created a shape that was a bit different than what was exactly real in that period of time, but it gave her a whole different body, which was very usable and very beautiful when designing the costumes. I mean, corsets that are pulled very tight, which they were in those days, can cause a lot of body damage, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I did a show called The Nick, which took place in 1899, 1900, and it was on the actor Eve Hewson, who's an adorable young woman who played a nurse, but she still wore a corset. She wore a corset every day that she worked. We did it for two seasons. And by the time the second season came, her whole body had changed shape. And it was because of corset wearing. Yeah. Now it it changed for the better. Mm. The other thing I loved about Bridgerton with diversity is the characters, the sisters were all different shapes. You had fuller figure, Phoebe was obviously, you know, very slim. And you put them all in corsets, right? And didn't try to disguise their curves, which Mm -mm. is refreshing. I mean, there's a particular silhouette that we went for. And as I said, the emphasis was on the bosom. And that was an on-pure line. And actually creating that shape And actually doing some alterations of that shape, whether it was adding a sweep to it or something that was graceful about it, because it could be kind of just boring and very clunky looking if we didn't do some kind of grace to add some kind of fullness to the back to allow it to sweep through a room as opposed to plop down The point of that corset was to really just put the bosom in the right place. What I also loved is you had a lot of fun with colors and flowers. Tell us about that, because I was amazed at the freedom also that you had to be so creative. Definitely not your normal period TV show. No, it was a streaming show, okay, which can be different than a TV show. In that, in a TV show, you have a certain amount of time I don't really do this that often because the things that I've worked on in TV are streaming. So you have in TV, you have a certain amount of time frame you have to work in. But now in streaming, it is long form storytelling or I'll call it long form storytelling. So in Bridgerton, I was fortunately, I was very fortunate in this situation. I had worked with Shonda Rhimes before on a number of different things that she has a particular aesthetic. And her aesthetic is one of affecting fashionable change in some way. Affluence is very prominent in her work. And this was no exception. She had bought these books. Bridgerton was made from a series of eight books by Julia Quinn. And now the first one was being adapted. That being said, Chris Van Dusen, who was the original creator of the series, along with Shonda, created a series that the first thing that he said to me was, I don't want any bonnets. And so with that, that note leads to a different perspective. That being said, 
I was the first one hired. I created a book, a lookbook, and said, this is how I see the world. Is this how everybody sees the world? Everybody said, yeah, we see, see the world just like you see the world, meaning Shonda, Betsy, Chris, all of the people in the company. And so we proceeded. Okay. And that world consisted of kind of a merge of periods in a way that was not strictly Regency fair. The colors, the palette was very different. I based it off of a fabulous painter that I was influenced by, Geneve Figgis. She's an Irish young painter who her artistry is extraordinary. Her palette was gorgeous. And I said, well, that's Bridgerton. And it just was one, two, three. And everything then revolved around that. And so we created a world. And when I say created a world, that's what it was. It was not any like, okay, Regency people, come on over and we'll just put you all together. The world was very specific. So when the production designer was hired, he went according to the world cinematographer, makeup and hair, everybody was in line. And in doing so, I thought it was a very embellished world. And so I just went about embellishing all that. We had a total separate embellishing department. We had a cutting department. We had a making department. We had a fitting department. We had a fabric department. We had an embroidery department. We had shoes. We had everything from soup to nuts. We created our own costume house. And it was quite fascinating. I don't think people realize that you literally do every single thing, every shoe, every cuff. I mean, it's really fascinating. And and by the way, I loved the male outfits. They designs. were fabulous. They, yeah, they were beautiful. The, the suede and the velvet. Oh, my God. It was just absolutely gorgeous. Okay, switching gears. I know you have worked a lot with Angelina Jolie. You've worked on a ton of movies with her. I want to talk about one in particular. First, they killed my father. Mm-hmm. I remember, actually, when you went to Cambodia <laughs> and you spent a lot of time there. Now, that's a very different type of film for you. And every single costume you told me you designed, whether it's on somebody who is living in the fields or, you know, getting shot or massacred. Tell us about that, because that is a, I mean, I can't imagine that must have been mind blowing for you to work on something like that. Doing that film was um, a great experience and going to Cambodia was um quite a fulfilling experience, I have to say, being part of a totally different culture and a different way of looking at things was quite, you know, exciting. I'm a very, very curious person. So I like that. That being said, we had to create a time and a place because it is a story. It's a real story. It's a horrendous story, but it's a real story. Genocide, mass Mm -hmm. killing. Yeah. Of a family. Yeah. I've I've read the book. So Luyang was her name and she was there all the time. It was a very emotional piece to be part of. You just couldn't help but feel the weight of the story you were working within every day, every day. But it also took place at a period of time that nothing existed. And the fortunate part of working in Cambodia, what's available to you are really brilliant cutters and stitchers. and Yeah, a lot of factories. Yeah. <laughs> no, we had it all in our house. We made it all. There's no factory. The only factories that were used were to make the uniforms, to recreate them all, every part of the uniform. So that's the tops, the bottoms, the shoes, the hats, 
the scarves. To clarify, there are tons of garment factories in Cambodia, like Nike and Adidas. They're not necessarily just one. They're really under one roof. And so one floor yeah, might yeah, be Yeah, they're Nike. all together, yes. <laughs> they're <yeah>. all together. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you're never to know that, but you see it in, immediately, particularly when you go to get garments dyed. You know that all of it is really together. But that being said, it was a great experience because it was really building, also building a world from scratch and having to make every single garment that you actually see in the film. And it was to be made to look as if it is just everyday wear. It's the early 70s and it's just very simple, easy clothing. Well, the making it look old, I often wonder how that happens. <laughs> well, you have a team, the Aging and Dying Textile Department, and it's the Aging and Dying Department is a part of the textile department. You could create textile as well. You could have textile painters, etc. But there is a whole team of people that take what's new and do everything that they possibly need to do to it to make it look old. Right, right. Wow. What a skill. And putting blood on, you know, when people have been massacred or whatever. And that comes down to the costume department. The wardrobe department manages what happens on the set and what needs to happen after a killing, after a shooting, after rolling in the mud, after falling, anything that needs attention. Now, didn't Angelina direct that film? Yeah, she directed that film. And how was that experience? Well, it was fine. I'd worked with her before as an actor and a director, and this was, she was just directing, and it was a story that was very close to her heart. Yeah, because of her children, right? Yes, mm -hmm. and it was Maddox. That was her first child that she adopted. That's where she met Long, and they formed a friendship, and that's how she got connected to the book that was then adapted. She was a good director. She knew what she wanted to do and she knew the film that she wanted to make. And she was very clear about it. And everybody around her in the support group, because that's what we are, a support group, facilitate everything that's necessary in making a film. She was able to get. And that's the film that you see in front of you. Well, she's done incredible work with the UN. Obviously, she's gone to war-torn countries. She's been a an ambassador for some of the monstrosities that are happening in the world, trying to create change. So I imagine that this was indeed, I think I told you, I had been to Cambodia with Ashley Judd, who was my ambassador at the time. And we looked at the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot and the school, you know, where there was still blood on the floor. So I can only imagine the experience that you and your team had when you were telling that story. It was intense. It was without a question, a very intense, but I loved it. I mean, I thought that Cambodia was a beautiful country and the experience of, you know, when you work on a movie and, you, and you're transported to another country and you have your own life of living in that country, it's a different experience than just going for a little while. You know, we were there for a bunch of months and it was difficult to get used to but once you got used to it, it was like making a movie in a little town. Mm, yeah, like a village. Mm -hmm. Like in a tiny village. But a lot of it was westernized at that time. And we went to Badabang as well and, and shot, I think we shot the armies coming into Phnom Penh and Badabang. And most of it was shot otherwise in Sanreep. 
And it was beautiful and the people were beautiful and they were very proud of their work and they were lovely. Everybody was just so wonderful. But what was really terribly sad about the entire story was simply that I remember one scene that we were shooting in the river and there were young children extras that came to work that day. And they were usually brought by their grandmothers for the most part. Now, the thing about First They Killed My Father is that Cambodia, you do not learn about this war when you were in school. There is nothing that is handed down. No one knows anything. The generation of grandparents, it stopped there. They lived the war, but it's never taught. It's never shown. For everyone listening, three million Cambodians were slaughtered, massacred with machetes over a period of, I think it was over 10 weeks. That's half of what happened in the Holocaust. Not to compare, they're all genocides. They're all horrific. But I didn't know about what happened in Cambodia until Ashley and I went there. That was, I don't think the average American understands what happened. So telling those stories, making those movies and bringing them to life as you do is incredible. And it's a great teaching mechanism. Without a question. Without question. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have one last thing to talk about, and that is, first of all, congratulations on Oppenheimer. It's winning every award. What was your highlight working on that film? The whole entire thing. I haven't seen it yet. I'm excited to see it. It's a breathtaking film. I would say it's a, without a question of doubt, Chris Nolan's masterpiece. It is the most seamless, magnificent film that you could see. You think you know what the story is, but you don't know what the story is. And you really do sit on the edge of your seat in watching this because it's a long film. It's three hours, but it whizzes by. It really does. And you are just captivated by what you see. It's an intimate portrait of this man who was extremely complex and very, very, very complicated and how all of this chaos and quantum physics and everything plays into who he is and what he is and so on, which all sounds very kind of esoteric as I say it, but it isn't. When you watch that film, it is 100%, I'm not biased, a complete film. There is nothing like this film in the market today. I do not think that this film will go away. I think it will be one of those films that 50 years from now, they'll still be studying or it still will be a film that goes down in history as a masterpiece. It is complete from the first image comes on screen. Every single department on this film, every piece of work, whether it's the music, whether it's the cinematography, makeup and hair, props, visual effects, costume, Every single person on this film, more than most films, worked hand in hand in the most seamless fashion because Chris Nolan is a brilliant conductor, a brilliant visionary, a brilliant storyteller, and a magnificent artist. And it's the epitome of it all. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. What gives you the most joy? about the work that you do? What gives you the goosebumps? I think that as an end result, if what I've done 
can affect another person watching the film and they take it into their lives in some way Mm. that opens something in a curious manner and they can share it then with another person and communicate and it can affect change in some way, in some way. It can be the slightest little way that will give me joy. Well, I think a lot of the films that you've worked on, you know, are moments in pop culture and have created that change that you're talking about. I think Bridgerton especially has sent a big message out to the world and it is a masterpiece thanks to you and the team that worked on it. So congratulations for Thank you so much. all of the work that you've done. And in closing, because we are over time, young girl setting out, wants to be a costume designer. What's the one piece of advice that you would give her? Be patient. Yeah. Persist and be patient and stay curious and learn how to communicate. And maybe listen, right? Listening is so important. I think it's listening without a question. The advice would be, Learn to listen, learn to communicate, be patient and persistent. Well, you certainly command the space you do, Ellen. You are such an inspiration. I feel grateful to have you in my life. I as well. And congratulations on your continued success. I can't wait to see what you do next. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And my pleasure. It's so great to be here. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast 10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.